All right, everybody, welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast, season two, episode one. I'm Jax, and I am so glad to be back. We've been gone too long. We're comparing Slippery When Wet versus New Jersey, Bon Jovi's Two Big Sounds. You say that, and I get chills. I'm just, I'm so excited about this. (laughs) I'm ready to let it rock. I'm ready to let Let it go, go. because... Can't stop a fire burning out of control. No, and I'm just—I'm hoping we're still wanted, dead or alive. <laughs> we did take two steel horses to <laughs> this location tonight. Two podcasts. So, all right, Jason. Before we jump in, I want to say thanks to our executive producer for this episode, Mr. Jonathan Tweedy. He entered in, gave us a Patreon subscription, and he is the executive producer of our Bon Jovi episode. Thanks, Jonathan. We really appreciate you. If you would like to be a Patreon and become an exclusive producer, go to our Patreon page, click subscribe. And it's that easy. That's it. You just <laughs> hit subscribe. Now pick your pick your amount. You can you can be an executive producer for as little as five dollars a month. We start sending out prizes after that. So be sure and take advantage of that while it lasts. Um, but anything that you can do to help out, we truly appreciate. And if you can't do that, tell a friend. Tell five friends. Tell ten friends. And we'll forgive you for not giving us a five dollars month. <laughs> <laughs> There's this place I like to go. It's called the 1980s. Let's do it. Let's go. Let's 1980s. go. 1980s. <laughs> All right. So listen, D. This is a massive battle for me personally. Okay. Okay. So there are a few pillar albums in my life, right? Yeah. So Thriller's one. Yes. Hysteria is one. Yes. Slippery When Wet. And New Jersey, that rounds out my big four pillars. Now, I've had love affairs with 5150 and 1984 and, you know, some of these others, but these are my four pillars. So today, we're going to start the comparison between two of my all-time favorite albums. Yeah. Well, I've mentioned it before. One of the songs on one of these albums is the reason that I started playing guitar which is a huge, huge thing in my life. So that's a big deal. We're excited about this. Yeah, this is pretty awesome. This is amazing. And you know, it's kind of interesting. It took a long time for Bon Jovi to get critical acclaim. You know, they were always a popular band. And because they were a popular band, there were haters out there and a lot of them were critics. And to those folks, I just got to say, screw you, man. You guys are missing out. Yeah. Yes, it, it's it's enjoyable to listen to this music. It's also enjoyable to bang your head to this music. This is just kick butt, good, top down, turn it up That's music. It. Absolutely. These guys have it all. They've got, they had looks, they had ability, they had great timing, yeah. and they had great songs. Yeah. So, I, I mean, we are going to have so much fun. You want me to do my checklist? Let's run down okay, the checklist. What's the checklist you got? Before we dive in, let's make sure I've got everything I need. Okay, okay. We, got, we got the talk box. Yep. Uh, we've got the six pack and the radio. We've got lipstick, plastic, and paint. And we're going to dance the tango with a broomstick in our hand. Okay? Okay. You ready? Let's let it rock. Bon Jovi, Slippery When Wet. Okay, so we got to start at the beginning. Now, I'm not sure which beginning we start at, but. Might as well start with John. His name is the band name after all, right? For sure. So interestingly, Bon Jovi 
is spelled differently than you might expect. It is, it is a complete word, B-O-N-G-I-O-V-I, Bongiovi, because they're Italian. Definitely got some Italian in there. Yeah. And um, he was born to a couple of Marines, a man and a woman who met in the Marine Corps. And then his mom went on to become a Playboy bunny, not in the magazines, but in the clubs, the, the Playboy restaurant. She walked around with the little tuft tail and the ears on and would wait on people like Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra, yeah. baby. <laughs> no, baby. Yeah. Yeah, I, I did. I Google searched her. Yeah. You can see her and she's wearing her little uh, her little ears and her little cottontail. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So she looked good. She looked like a 1960s Playboy bunny. Yeah. Wow. So former Marine. Yeah. God yeah. bless America. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So when they got married, he was going to do the standard, you know, I'm going to go become a plumber. And she was like, you know, why don't you become a hairdresser? Because I spent a lot of money on my hair and it'd be nice if you could do it. And he was like, okay, if you want me to do that, I'll do that. And so he became a hairdresser, which is probably why John has some of the best hair ever. <laughs> All right. So he, at some point, they decide, listen, you got to learn a musical instrument. And so at seven years old, he started playing the guitar. They took him to guitar lessons. He started playing the guitar. And he said the, it was like at the guitar shop and the old man had a pipe and would nod off. And it was, and you know, he was just not interested at seven. And after a few weeks of lessons, he was told to clean up, and so his way of cleaning up was to chunk the guitar down into the basement just to hear it clang. <laughs> and so it took several years till he was 13 before he picked the guitar back up again. And as it happened, a gentleman moved across the street who was like a, a session musician, but his name was Al Paranello. Well, just so that you know, Bon Jovi... It, has special little pins that are like in the shape of the Superman logo that if you go long enough with the band, like crew or band member or whatever, it's a very honorary thing. And it takes a lot of time to get it. And John, when Al died, he took his off and put it in the casket with Al. That's how important it was. He, he, he was to him. And so he started taking lessons from him. And he, instead of the scales, he's like, I'm going to teach you how to play House of the Rising Sun, which I loved because that was like the first song my dad taught me how to play on the guitar. I'm sure it's the first song for a whole lot of folks. Right, right. right? And so he teaches him how to play it. He says, come back next week. He comes back the next week. He still don't know how to play it. He's like, okay, well, come back next week. I need you to know it comes back the next week. He still doesn't know it. He says, listen, I don't have time to around with you. Okay. <laughs> I got kids. Yeah. If you're going to do this, do it. If not, don't waste my time. Yeah. You come back here next week and you don't know it. We're done. And John was like, that was the exact kick in the butt that I needed. And I worked the entire week and made sure that I knew it by the time I went back. So while he's trying to make it in high school and trying to put these, you know, trying to do something with these bands, he'll go and play at clubs during the week and play until the wee hours of the morning and then come to school the next day, you know, play right. till three, go to school at eight. And one night while he's playing a guy in the back named Bruce Springsteen decides to come and join him on stage how cool is that? If you're a high school kid, 17-year-old kid, and the boss says, hey, can I come up and sing with you? Uh, 
Duh. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And and he was one of John's idols. I mean, John talks about how it was, it was Bruce Springsteen. It was Southside Johnny. It was Jay Giles band. I mean, those guys were who he looked up to musically. Yeah. And Hey, Bruce Springsteen, my idol. You want to play with me? Absolutely. Let's go. Yeah. And he had a couple of buddies who also took guitar lessons from this guy. And one of those buddies name was Dave Sabo. Skid Row. You got it. Yep. We talked about him last fall. Yep. Uh, Dave and John were good buddies. Later on, John got a job at the radio station and he was being a gopher and he would sleep floors and he would go get dry cleaning and this and that. So he brought his buddy, Dave Sabo up to the, to the place. And Dave's like, that's Ozzy Osbourne right there. Right. There's Jagger. That's Mick Jagger. He's like, duh, why would you not want to work here? You know? Right. Yeah. So that guy that owned the radio station was a second cousin of John's. His name was Tony Bon Jovi. And the radio station was called the Power Station. And it was a place where obviously a lot of big names were coming. Sting has an album called 57th and 9th, which is named after the intersection that he would cross walking to that studio. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So he's working for his cousin as a gopher in this station, going, goes to get coffee, goes to make bets for people, doing whatever he can during the day. And then he had a long bus ride. He would spend his bus ride writing songs Uh and then he would get home at night and play, practice, right? And at some point, he puts together a song. He puts together several songs, but he's really excited about this song called Runaway. Runaway. But, now a lot of people think this is his first professional recording, but it's not. Bring it on. Let's go. I, I would get this trivia question. His first professional recording actually occurred a couple of years earlier when a small movie called Star Wars was recording a Christmas album and they were recording a song called R2D2 We Wish You a Merry Christmas and Tony at the recording station says hey my cousin over here he'd be good to sing that song for you and so John Bon Jovi's first professional record is on Christmas in the Stars the Star Wars Christmas album and here is here's a sample of John Bon Jovi singing R two D two. We wish you a merry Christmas. That is so freaking awesome, man! I don't know that I would say awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little it's a little strange. It doesn't sound like the Bon Jovi we know and love, but it is pretty crazy to hear that. You ready for this? Yes. I have this album. Oh my god. I have this album. I You have, own it. I own this album, this record. Like you had the LP. Well, I was a Star Wars freak. Yes. So I had everything I could get my hands on Star Wars wise. Yeah. I didn't become a Bon Jovi freak until later. Yeah. It just happened that worlds collided and I looked and I'm like, hey, I got this record. Oh my god. There's another song on it, I think, called uh, What Do You Buy a Wookiee When He's Already Got a Comb or something like that. 
that was like my favorite song growing up. So uh, it's fantastic. <laughs> that is fantastic. So it wasn't the runaway hit that Runaway became, and neither was Runaway when it first came out. He was very excited about it. He was singular focused. He had he knew what he wanted, and that was what he was pursuing with all of his effort. And so he was sending out this demo of Runaway to all of these radio stations and wasn't getting anywhere. And he thinks to himself, you know. Who's the loneliest guy in the music industry? It's the DJ. Right. Right. Because he's just there in a room by himself talking to a microphone, pretending he's talking to the world. And so he goes to this station called WAAP, the Apple, and he walks in and it's, it's a very new station and they don't even have a receptionist yet. And so he walks in and the DJ's in the booth, like talking to the microphone, looking at him like, what the heck, what are you doing here? He's like, I just, you know, I've got this music. I was wondering if you would listen to it and maybe play it on the radio. And so the guy listens to Runaway and he's kind of impressed and he shows it to the station director and the station director's kind of impressed. And not only do they want to play it on the radio, but they want to put it on an LP that they're making of local homegrown music that then happens to get distributed because they're a chain radio station. It distributed to all of the sister radio stations around the country. I, I heard John, when he talked about this, he went to the DJ. First of all, he had the hustle and the drive and the ambition and the guts to go up to this guy and say, look, play this, it's really good. When he said, he said, listen, if you'll play this three and a half minutes from now, you'll realize standing in front of you is a rock star. <laughs> And you know what? He was right. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. could say that and that wouldn't be true, but when he said it, it was true. Yeah, absolutely. And when it started to get the airplay, suddenly all of those record companies that he had been getting, getting turned down by were now giving him calls. Ended up going with the record label Mercury. And they said, all right, we need to, we need to put together this song. We need to put together an album. And so he puts together a band that's supposed to be together for three weeks. Right. When Runaway comes out, he doesn't have a band. He doesn't have management. He doesn't have a record label. He's just a guy with a great song. You know, he, he didn't play all the music himself. He did have a, 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 some guys playing the music for him, but it wasn't his band. But here's who it was. The guitarist was Tim Pierce, who played with Rick Springfield and several other huge names. Wow. The keyboardist was Roy Britton, who was a member of the E Street Band with <laughs> Bruce Springsteen <laughs> and several. I mean, they call him the professor. He was, he's a big name. The bassist was Hugh McDonald, who is now the bassist for Bon Jovi. I mean, he had a top-notch crew on that first single recording that he had, but they weren't his band. He needed to have a band. And so he called up Dave Bryan. David Bryan was born David Bryan Roshbaum. He got tired of spelling out his last name. So <laughs> he changed, he shorted it down to David Bryan. He was a keyboardist for John before Runaway became a big hit. They were in a band together called the Atlantic City Expressway. That was one of about three bands that John had. There was one called Rays. There was one called The Rest. When John gets this record deal, he calls up David Bryan and he's like, hey, I need a band. 
come be my keyboardist. And Dave's like, okay, well, I'm pre-med at Rutgers University and I've got a 4.0. And I realized that I wanted to be in the music industry, but um, I just got into Juilliard. Yeah. But yeah, sure. I'll go, I'll go tour <laughs> the country with you and make next to nothing. Sure. Let's give this rock band thing a try. Hey, bet on himself. He did bet on himself. Yeah. And it, it ended up working out. So David Bryan calls Alec John Such, who's a bass player, yep. says, hey, we're putting this band together. Come be a part of it. Yep. Alec John Such had been in a band called Phantom's Opera with Tico Torres. And Tico Torres is older than the rest of the guys. And so when he gets the call and listens to John Bon Jovi's song, he's thinking, I think this is it. I think I'm finally going to make it. And his wife's like, no, we have a house. Right. We, we have things that need to be taken care of. And he's like, I just, I believe that this is going to be great. And she says, I believe I'm going to leave you. Yeah. And that's where she went. Wonder how she feels. That she feels pretty <laughs> sad about that decision. Yes. <laughs> so Tico Torres, not only had he played with the Marvelettes and not only had he played with Chuck Berry, but when Kiss got rid of Peter Chris, they, he was one of the guys on the short list to be the drummer for him. He went out on an audition for him. Wow. Just didn't make it. So Tico's in, Alec John Such is in, Dave Bryan is in, and their guitarist is, as you mentioned, Dave Sabo from Skid Row. Yes. Although, Although Skid, Skid Row's, Skid Row's down not the a road. thing yet. Yeah. Yes, right. And so Dave Sabo was never really like a member of the band per se. It was just... He just kind of helped out with the touring of Runaway. Yeah. Right. And so... Alec John Such had also been in a band with this guy called Richie Sambora. He had been around. I mean, he had his own independent record label. He had played with several big names. He had signed a couple of different times. His bands had signed a couple of different times, just hadn't gotten there yet. Like it was just not quite there. Then he did this tour with as the opening act for Joe Cocker. And in 82, when Kiss and... Ace Freely part ways. Yes. He goes and auditions for Kiss to be their guitarist. So weird, right? Pretty, two, yeah, he's pretty close. Of, yeah. yeah. Two of the guys from Bon Jovi tried to replace two of the guys from Kiss and were not successful. Thank goodness for that. Yeah. And so Richie Sambora comes back. Alec John Such is like, hey, man, you got to come listen to this band that I'm playing with. They're phenomenal. And Richie's like, okay. Right. And he goes and he sees them and he said, it was magic. And after the show, he goes up to John. He says, hi, I'm your new guitarist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I heard him talking about this. He said when he watched John run around the stage, he's like, yep, that kid's a star. Yeah. And so John was like, okay, you know, let's see, you know, what you can do or whatever. And so he's like, come out, you know, we'll play together, see how it goes. Know these five songs. Right. Know these five songs. And so he, Richie comes to the studio or wherever it is they're practicing. He, he gets there on time. John is late. He works with the band while John is arriving. And when John gets there, they're already tight and play for him. And he's like, well, guess you're in. I guess you're in. <laughs> oh my gosh, just the incredible opportunity and the timeliness of this and John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambor are, are a songwriting duo that gave us these great songs. Yeah, absolutely. Doc McGee comes to him and says, do you have management? No, right. I don't. As a reminder, Doc McGee is the guy who managed Motley Crue. Motley Crue, Kiss, the Scorpions. Right. But 
But Bon Jovi was pretty early on in this. Like way he, early. He had Motley Crue. He had Motley Crue. And that was about it at that point. He's on his way up with Motley Crue. Yeah. So Motley Crue's happening, and he goes to, to Bon Jovi, and he says, I want to manage you guys, and I want to make you the biggest band in the world. Right. And so this, just, uh, just to kind of lay the foundation for another story that might get told, also around this time, about January of 1982, Doc McGee meets a guy named Steve <laughs> Kalish in the Cayman Islands, who is known as the last gentleman smuggler. We'll get into all that maybe later on, but for now, it's just a a seed, a little teaser, if you will. And so they go into the studio to record their first album, which obviously must include Runaway. They named the album Bon Jovi, which, you know, they're, they're doing the full Van Halen, right? Yeah. Let's name the let's name the band after me and let's go ahead and name the first album after me too. Yep. And it does okay. Mm-hmm. Runaway cracks the top forty. Thirty-nine, I think, is as high as it got. That would be a crack. That's a crack. That is a tiny little crack yep. in, the, in the top forty. And so they're touring, opening up for other bands, and they after a while they do a second album called Seventy Eight Hundred Degrees Fahrenheit. They really don't know who they are at this point. And if you've watched any of the videos that they have for any of these songs, they're so cringy. I I think they might be more cringy than those Def Leppard Pyromania videos that we watched. <laughs> I watched one the other day. I think it was it was one of the songs on seventy eight hundred. I think it was Only Lonely. A pre Terminator Linda Hamilton. Oh my! Is the girl that he's oh in love gosh. with in the video? Oh my word! How about that? That's crazy. So. When they get done touring, they realize we're paying more money to our crew than we are to ourselves. The only guy in the band who had his own house was Tico Torres. Right. Everybody else lived with mom and dad. Yeah. I'm a rock star. I'm on MTV. I'm living in my mom's basement. Yeah. They go back and... And, and live with mom and dad. And so Richie Sambora's parents work during the day, both of them. Yep. And so John would come over to his house in the morning. They would go down to the basement and they start working on songs. And John gives him this idea for a song that kind of has this relationship to touring similar to a cowboy riding into town, taking your money, taking your women and getting out of town before you know what's happened and gives him the layout and Richie Sambora walks this little line down the guitar neck and John's like, that's it, man. That is exactly what it needs to be. And that was going to be the original name or that was the original name of Slippery When Wet. They were going to call the album Wanted Dead or Alive. I think that's a cool name. Oh yeah. They actually took publicity pictures where they all kind of grew their beards out and they had, they look like young guns. I mean, that's that they look like the poster of young guns. <laughs> right. Um, but, but calling the album Wanted Dead or Alive, I don't think would have been a hindrance at all. I mean, no. So he and Richie are writing songs together in Richie's parents' basement and they decide they want to recruit somebody to help them write hits because we're about to do album number three. And if album three doesn't make them, it's going to break them. Yeah. Because if you don't hit it on album three, the record company is going to be done with you. Yep. Yep. And so they recruit this gentleman named... Desmond Child. So Desmond Child, at the time that they say, come write some songs with us, what's he got on his list? Okay, so he came up with the song, I Was Made For Loving You. I was made for loving you, baby. 
which Kiss did, which was, for Kiss fans, they know this, it's like the disco Kiss. Yeah. He introduced disco to Kiss, but it was a, su- a successful song. But the song that, that John really liked, John and Richie liked, that caused them to want to, to work with Desmond was a song called Heavens on Fire by Kiss. So Desmond Child drives out to New Jersey, driving to Richie Sambora's house, sees this wooden plank house out next to a swamp. You can see the smokestacks from the factory down the road. And he's like, what am I getting myself into? <laughs> a rock star lives here. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so he goes down to the basement and they start talking and he says, you know, I really think a great name for a song would be You Give Love a Bad Name. And John goes, shot through the heart and you're to blame. And then John, Richie and Desmond all at the same time go, you give love a bad name. And it was magic. Yep. John stole that Shot Through the Heart. That was a song from his first album Yeah, called Shot Through the Heart. Yeah. Okay. So they sit down and in this writing session with Desmond Child, mm-hmm. they write, You Give Love a Bad Name. Yep. They also write a song called Without Love, I Die For You. Oh, and they also wrote this little song you might've heard called Living on a Prayer. I think, is that on Slippery One? I think it. I okay. think it is. <laughs> so anyway desmond child comes they write four songs to make the album and and so they start working on songs one of the songs i know john and rishi wrote in the basement you talked about one dead or alive they also wrote the song never say goodbye so they're gathering songs and the record company says well it's time to record the album we want you away from new york right so we're gonna fly you to vancouver right well they they both, Richie and John, both really liked the album Loverboy by Loverboy. Mm-hmm. And John also really liked the album Without Love, which was by a heavy metal band called Black and Blue. And so they said, this is our guy. This is our producer. So he says, I'm, I want you guys to come up here to me in Canada, and we're going to record up here. you got the World's Fair going on over there. You've got this place called the Number 5 Orange Strip Club. So they get up there. They start laying down tracks, and they go, you know, they get done at 10 or 11 at night, and they're like, oh, this is early. <laughs> we're early. Let's go to the strip club. And so they go with Doc McGee, and they're all at the strip club, and this woman literally – now, of course, why wouldn't we, on our very first episode of season two, why wouldn't we start talking about strippers? Why wouldn't we? We have to. I mean, stripper right. music. We it, okay. About. So this woman comes sliding from the ceiling, comes <sighs> sliding down a pole, then goes and gets in the shower, soaps herself up, and Doc McGee goes, you know, I always thought a good name for a song or an album would be Slippery When Wet. And their tongues are hanging out of their mouths, and they're going, "Yeah, that sounds great." Yeah, whatever you say. <laughs> that sounds huh? What? Yeah, great. Sounds good. That is. That's how they got the name of the album. Yeah, that's where "Slippery When Wet" came from. Yep. And for most folks who have seen the album cover, you would think, "Oh, this is a road sign kind of thing." Well, that's not the original album cover. Let's talk about the original album Go cover. Go ahead. Okay. So after they had completed the songs, which we'll get to here in a second, mm-hmm. they came out with an album cover where they went to the Jersey Shore. 
They gathered up some great looking girls. They took some pictures to it with your boy, Mark Weiss. Yes, Mark Weiss. Mark Weiss, whose wedding was where John Bon Jovi's parents discovered Sebastian Bach. Go back and listen to our Skid Row versus Dr. Feelgood episode. There you go. So they gathered up and they found this one girl. Her name was Angela. And they liked Angela because she was particularly busty. They gave her a slippery one wet shirt. They cut it up. Mm -hmm. They uh, took a close up of her. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a 1980s metal cover. Uh huh. She's, you know, wet, wet and bursting at the seams. Yeah. They put a pink trim around the edge, a border that was supposed to be like matching her lipstick. Uh huh. They called the album "Slippery and Wet." Yeah. And when the record company saw it, they're like, "We can't. What? We, this is another album you gave us. We can't sell in Walmart. What are you doing right. to us here?" <laughs> right. And John saw it. It's like. Pink? Yeah. Why is this pink crap on here? Right. I'm a serious rocker. I like the girl, but I can't have the pink. So they grabbed these at the last second and they pulled like they had printed like 40,000 of these. Yeah. Well, they, and they got issued in Japan. They, yes. You can actually buy these on eBay. Right. And this just FYI, Bon Jovi was a hit in Japan long before they were a hit in the United States. So it's awesome. way to go, Japan. You guys were on the ball. <laughs> so John says, look, this is I'm not having this. Pull this right now. And so they go over to Mark Weiss's house mm -hmm. and, and they're like, we got to come up with an album cover right now. Yeah. So they stretch out a, a garbage bag, a yeah. black garbage bag, lay it on a table, spray it down. And John writes with his finger, slippery when wet, snap a couple of pictures. And that's the album cover you see today. Brilliant. It works too. Yeah. So before we jump into the album, D, the producer of this album, as you mentioned, was Bruce Fairbairn. He had this little engineer that was an up-and-coming guy. Yeah, might have heard of him. His name's Bob Rock. He produced Dr. Feelgood. Yep. He then produced Metallica's Black Album. Right, which, which he got because of Dr. Feelgood. Which he got because of Dr. Feelgood. We're yep. hoping to cover that later on this year. Yeah. But yeah, he is a major, Mega. major producer. They just caught him right before he broke big. So before we dive into the songs, I have a really cool story for you. Yeah, okay. gotcha. So they have 30 or so demo songs. They had gone to Vancouver. They had demoed all these songs that they had written in Richie's mother's basement. Right around the corner from their studio was a little pizza place. So they would go down to the pizza place and there's all these teenagers would hang out there. And they thought, you know what? This, if this is our audience, why don't we ask them what they think? So they invited this crew of teenagers back to the studio and they played the demos for them. And the teenagers would make comments, you know, hey, this is not too bad. And I, I kind of like this one. And this is pretty good. <laughs> and there are songs. Actually, I think what they said was, it doesn't suck. This doesn't suck. <laughs> <laughs> Which sounds like our teenagers, right? Right. <laughs> right. But John is very clear and very public that, that some of the songs that made Slippery and Wet would not have been there if it hadn't been for what they called the pizza parlor jury. One of those songs? Never Say Goodbye. Living on a Prayer. <laughs> living on a Prayer. Doc McGee said, but for the pizza parlor jury, Living on a Prayer probably would not have been on Slippery Window. <sighs> we'll talk about that here in a second. Oh, my God. John was not as big a fan of this song. No, I know. All right. Are we ready to dive into Let's the dive into this album. Okay. we got to start listening to the music right now. Next week, it's a cliffhanger. Oh, you did it again. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Hang around. Come back next week. We will dive in track by track, slippery when wet.
Love it. Come back and see us. Tell your friends. Subscribe. Patreon. Patreon. Subscribe. <laughs> Five-star review. Love you guys. See you soon.